Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the interior design community for the interior design community. My name is Jeff Hayward and with my co-presenter Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tesuta Interiors and past President of the British Institute of Interior Design, we look at the challenges faced by professional interior designers and provide advice on how to deal with them. We're joined every month by a special guest who can share their insights and expertise with you. Today, we're looking at the all-important fee proposal. As a designer, your fee proposal should speak volumes about you, your approach to design, and your practice. Generally, it's the first piece of written information your client will ever receive from you. So, how do you use it to showcase your professionalism? How can it help present you as the safe pair of hands that your client needs and trusts? Above everything, how do you create a proposal that clearly sets out all your design services within the stated fee? Welcome to the interior design business. We're very grateful to kitchen manufacturer Bolthub, who are hosting us in their busy Holland Park showroom for this recording today. And we're also thrilled to have as our special guest, the past president of the British Institute of Interior Design. Welcome Charles Leon, founder and managing director of top architectural interior design consultant Leon Black. Thank you very much. And I'm very, very pleased to be here with you. Charles, please, can you tell us a bit about your design background? Yeah, it's not a conventional route, but uh, I started out life uh, at art school and then sort of gravitated into theatre design, left college and went to work very luckily at the National Theatre, not as a designer, but as a prop maker. From that, that sort of gently gravitated with friends that I had at college who started a construction company for film. And they said, Charlie, why don't you come and join us? So I said, yeah. Why not? So I followed them out to Spain and became uh, the art director on the film, which was called Straight to Hell, about coffee drinking cowboys. And then I got offered a project, first of all, at Pinewood and then in Los Angeles. And what it meant was leaving the country for about six months. And my daughter had just been born. Uh And I just thought, that's not a great idea. By coincidence, one uh, old friend of mine who was the head of prop making at RADA, Um, said he had a friend who ran a hotel design company and uh, it was exactly the same as doing theatre. So I thought, yeah, why not? So I went went to an interview and he said, it's exactly the same as doing theatre, so why don't you come and do hotel design? Worked there for five years and did a lot of their European work and thoroughly enjoyed it, but then felt, that's it, I'm not a very good employee. I need to be on my own. And that's how Leon Black was born. Well, no, that's how Charles Leon Associates Uh was born. And then sort of some years later, a friend of mine joined me and then we became Leon Black. And is it still hotel design today or are you doing a mixture of things? We do a whole range of different things and and some of it depends on where, how and where our clients come from, where they gravitate to. So the residential work started because most of the hotel designs that we did were for small entrepreneurs who said, I've got a property in Gibraltar, come and do that. And also I've got a property in Spain, come and do that. I've got a property in Moscow. And so it sort of grew from that. From that, we've also done work for spas and we've also done quite a lot of work recently for um, sort of what might be called the new breed of um, care homes, which is sort of boutique hotel style care homes. So that's the bulk of our work is sort of quite broad, Mm -hmm. really. And I'm a great believer that design is multifaceted and is applicable to almost anything. It's more of a way of thinking and an attitude than it is necessarily 
the individual details of what you do. Fee proposals, in this case, that we're going to talk about are very specific to our sort of marrying with the construction industry. Right, and it's, right. it's a very, very specific, difficult problem, I think. Well, let's explore that. You've had your introductory meeting with a prospective client. You've received the RFP or request for proposal. It's the enormous career-making dream project you've always wanted. Where on earth do you begin? Susie, what's your start point? So we always make a point of starting with the client's brief because when a client first comes to you, they know that they have a project. They most often will not actually know in any to any level of detail what that project is. So they have an amount of money to spend and an outcome that they're trying to achieve, um, but they have no idea how they're going to get from one to, to the other. So the first thing you need to do is you need to actually drill down with them exactly what it is that that they're asking you to do. And then once you've got that brief nailed, then that becomes the basis of your fee proposal and everything else that follows on from there. So it doesn't quite work like that for us, particularly with hotels, is that we will get an RFP. And from that, we may not meet the client, we may not see the client, it will be maybe a project manager or quantity surveyor who will come to us with their proposal. So the difficulty we have, and the, the core of all fee proposals is defining what the project is. And that comes in lots of different forms. One is, what's the building? Where does it go? Or what is the building going to be? And the other is, what does the client actually want to do? And that is the part that we work on first. But for me, that's the brief. So yes, all those things, all I those agree. things would be yeah. covered off in the brief. So the yeah. first, the first part of the exercise is always to establish what is the actual project, where is it, mm. who are the stakeholders, what's involved. But the terrible thing is with clients is that quite often they don't want to release all the information. So we will say, right, what's your budget? And I say, we're not telling you yet because they want to know what we think it should be. And that's an almost impossible um, situation where there's no win in that. And not only that, they may not have fully defined where they want, particularly for hotels, which is really a marketing product. They may not have defined where they want it to go. You know, they will say, oh, there's a great hotel down the road. We want it to look just like that. And you think, no, no you really? Don't. You don't. No, <laughs> we've got one you of those don't. already. We want it to look like that. There is one of those and they do it very well. You don't want to be the same, but they do quite often. So defining the brief and defining the aims, the goals, the budgets, the um, all the parameters, basically the rules of the game is, I think, the key central part of defining a fee proposal. Agreed. But I also think, I think one of the ways you can get around some of those difficulties, because you're right, clients can be extremely kind of coy, shall we say, about things like telling you how much money they want to spend, just because they're frightened you'll spend up to it, or again, they want they want you or to tell than. them, yeah, or more than. Um, we always will state any assumptions we're making. Yes. So we will state the assumptions in, and we'll put it in a separate section called assumptions. So we'll, we'll, write their brief back to them as we understand it. Assumptions stating. and exclusions. Assumptions and exclusions. You're yes. absolutely right. Um, and that way, you know, if you're then basing your fee on a certain amount of work that you're going to do and you have assumed that certain parts of that responsibility will be taken over, for example, by other members of the professional team, then you've got that. And the client can't come back to you at that point and go, but I thought you were doing that. And at which point you then have to have the awkward conversation with them saying, well, I haven't priced in for it. It's a, it's a very tricky one. It astonishes me that, you know, we'll, we'll start with an RFP, we'll start working on it, and yet 
The clients don't understand that that's part of the design process and it is a big part of it because what you're doing is you're deconstructing the whole of the uh, potential project saying what elements are going to go into this? What are we responsible for? What is someone else responsible for? That deconstruction process is probably the key to actually getting a fee proposal at all if you ever get there and also into defining what you're going to design and the direction that they want to go in. I'm astonished that clients don't often spend more time in developing their brief more than necessarily picking a designer because it's the brief that really will define who can do the job. And the RFP, it sounds to me, can be very incomplete in what it says to you. So you need so much more work to actually define that brief, yes, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a section, we have an initial brief and then we have a section within our fee proposal dedicated to developing the brief. Mm. So that we, again, and sometimes if we don't feel that there's sufficient information to take it any further, we'll say, okay, we're going to do a, a bit of a feasibility study with you and we will develop this brief further. And then once we know exactly what it is that we're designing, then we can um, we can actually give you a list of deliverables and put, mm. put a price tag on those. See, I think you can break down that brief part even more because we will have what we will, or the way we'll approach it will be, we'll have a technical brief, we'll have what we call an emotional brief, and then we'll have a financial brief. And sometimes even a spiritual brief, if that's, uh, that's for <laughs> residential projects. Um, because what, what clients, particularly for commercial projects do, is they may well have thought out where they want the technicalities. You know, we want this much football, we want this to happen, we want this to go through there, the operational, uh, whatever. All those parameters can come in. But what I need as a designer is that, Plus, I need all the emotional words, all the things that really sort of begin to describe what they want to feel. Because uh, for me, I'm sure for you, Susie, as well, design is about um, manipulating emotion. It's manipulating people. So you need to know what you want them to feel. That's what design's all about. And the brief is the bit that's going to steer everybody in the right direction. That's critical in the residential space as well. It's the, mm. that emotional connection. Oh, absolutely. So, and it's, yes, almost even, <laughs> even more so. I was, uh, we were discussing this actually earlier today, and one of the things with private clients, residential clients, is that th this is the time at which they're not only spending more of their own post-tax income than they ever will on anything. So it's incredibly important to get it right, but they're so invested emotionally and the, the property not only has to re meet all their stringent requirements, but it also has to speak volumes about them. You know, it has to it has to show their aspirations. It's it's almost the, their swagger portrait, but if you like. But this is where, <laughs> where the, particularly in residential projects, where the clients begin to face how they want to live as to where they, what how they live at the moment. I, I always think the difference between commercial and residential is that one should be, relatively um, impassionate, should be uh, more of a marketing exercise, a branding exercise, whereas the other is completely emotional. It's how do you want to live? How do you want to relate to other people within the space? And the two things cross over, of course. But, uh, but even with commercial clients, you do get some that are very emotional, you know, because uh, again, it's, it's these, these projects that they're quite often, they can be vanity projects for them. And so they're just invested in how the world will see them through whatever it is you're Absolutely. designing for them. So there is, there, is no easy, there is no easy answer. So you talked about assumptions. How important is it to be forthright with stating those assumptions 
Like, oh, I think it's critical. So we would we would always do things like we would we would say we would list you know who we think the we are assuming that the stakeholders, for example, will be, and it could be everyone in a commercial project mm. from the from the waiting staff to the to the cleaners to you know, it could be anyone and everyone. Never mind just the guests and the management. Um, if it could be what other sorts of assumptions do we state? We have, as I said, we always state when the, what role we're being asked to take on, and we principal designer or are we? Just interior designer. You know, what are the roles that we're actually responsible for? Um, are we responsible for CDM, for example? Um, are we responsible? Are, uh, who else is responsible? Who are the other professionals? We list out. There's an architect. There's an there's structural engineer. There's a, an M and E consultant. There's a you know whoever else there might be. So that it's very clear to the client what our fee and yeah. our brief and our little bit of this story we're going to tell. We will also. I mean, we will stay say from the beginning. Um, our assumption is that you want this and this quality because the quality can be um, very simple or it can be incredibly expensive. And we've worked with clients where money really isn't the object, it's getting the right product. Those are some of the vanity projects. So we will always say we are assuming that this is the sort of quality you want. And we'll try to benchmark it either against a building or um, good words or a competitor or some, or if it's residential, just to somehow describe that level of quality. And then there are lots of other assumptions. Some is that we will then predicate on that, that, well, we're assuming that you, you will be spending X, Y, Z per square meter. And that may be £1,000, it may be £4,000, it may be £10,000. So that's pounds. handy because if they won't tell you your budget, you're effectively telling them, yeah. you know, you're making the assumption well, that to achieve this level of quality, this is what you need to, to spend. And I think you have to, by some of the assumptions, get some of the really nasty, dirty work out the way. You have to get your client to face up to what the meaning of what they're asking is. Time scale is the other one. Clients can be incredibly unrealistic when it comes to how long things will actually take. Absolutely. And so something else you assume, we always put in, we know that we have assumed that this is a two-month, three-month, six-month, 12-month, 24-month, mm -hmm. however many months, five-year project. And on that basis, therefore, our fee for doing on-site supervision, for example, is predicated on a certain number of site visits. And that's how you drive those numbers out, just as an example. And then it just gives the client then the opportunity going through all this stuff that you've given them to mm -hmm. then turn around and say, oh, no, 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 it has to be finished by, you know, next July because we're having a 25th wedding anniversary party, at which point, you know, the entire thing has to be rethought because they probably won't have time to do the house from top to bottom, but maybe we could get two or three key rooms ready for them so that they could have that party or something. Have there ever been any assumptions you wish you'd made but you never thought you'd have to make? that when you get into the project, you're thinking, hang on a minute, I wish I'd have said that back then. I tell you what, Absolutely. every single every project, project. <laughs> that you ever <laughs> work something. on, you always think, ah, so if we'd have said that in the beginning, we wouldn't have this problem. And then you bring that assumption in. And then, of course, it's another it's problem that you one, never thought was going to happen. Someone comes at you out of left field and you just, you just can't pick them. You no. just don't know where they're going to come from when you start. And part of the problem is, is that we're not, I mean, we make assumptions, unfortunate sort of using the same word, we make assumptions about um, the, the clients thinking in the same way that we think. We think we've prepared them and that they're ready, but they have their own lives and their own agendas and it doesn't necessarily match or fit. And that happens regularly. We assume that after about a year of working with a client, explaining plans going through that they could read a plan. Uh -huh. And, and, 
it's suddenly uh, during a, a, an argument, actually, um, I realised they can't see what I see at all on the plan. They, they just can't see it. And then I realised it's a bit like reading music. Some people can look at a piece of music and they can see the melody immediately. And some people can look at several bars of it and, or staves or whatever they are and see a whole symphony. Whereas some people can look at it and just see dots on lines on a page and it means nothing. So I think that's, that's one of the great difficulties is that because we have, I think, a very high level of expertise, we assume that people can see what we see. And people can be very frightened sometimes to tell you and be honest with you to mm. say that they, they can't that they don't get it. Mm. And so you get all these people who have these loads of meetings, they're all smiling and nodding and mm, mm, yes, this is great, this is great, this is great. And then when it's built, and that's what you, obviously that's what you need to avoid, you need to make sure that they understand what it is they're buying because ultimately it's about buying a product for an amount of money. And this whole process that we go through is to get them to the point where they've got the product for the amount of money. We, we even, and even on commercial clients, we had we had one client who we, we'd actually produced uh, a 3D model of a typical floor on this in this 12-story mm. um, apartment building. And the client had looked at these drawings more times than I can tell you, I mean, countless times. And he suddenly went, but there's a door there. And yes, there's a door there. There's always been a door there. I don't want a door there. And had we not produced the 3D model, yeah. he would never. We've and this was an heart. experienced commercial client mm. who does this for a living. Yeah, we have had exactly the same. And we find now that if we produce even a rough sketch-up model um, with a fly-through, that clients suddenly sort of their eyebrows raise and they think, whoa, you know, I didn't realise that this was there or that was that. Um, they're, never, they're never great unless you're going to spend an absolute fortune on doing 3D models, but my word, it helps. But that's a little bit further down the line. Yeah. That's beyond the proposal stage you wouldn't do that normally at an early stage of a project okay so how can you be sure that you've included for everything is there any best <laughs> practice that you could advise people to to take i think for us if it's no the short answer is no it's, it's not possible to be sure that you've included for everything but if your assumptions and your exclusions are relatively robust or as robust mm. as you can make them and if you know that you cannot give a proposal for the next phase because you don't have enough information on the preceding phase, then you just say this will have to be the subject of a, se a separate fee proposal. You know, we need to get to point B before we can do C, D, E and F. I mean, we, we also set our fee proposals out roughly following the RIBA plan yeah, of work. Certainly. I think probably most people do that. But, you know, there is, a, there is a sort of logical structure to it that you have your feasibility, then you have your development of your brief, and then you have technical and detailed design, and then your, your, your time spent on site. And it's very important to define those phases in the early brief because those phases are actually the key milestones within a project and you shouldn't ever go forward beyond a milestone unless it's signed off, unless it's been sort of ratified. And you need to have all that in, in your proposal at the beginning. But with regard to can you be sure that you've included everything, honestly, you really can't. But you can put in disclaimers to say that whatever is not included is not included. So don't assume than it might be. And we've had that where, you know, uh, particularly with residential projects where a project starts to morph a bit and somebody says, well, wouldn't it be nice if? And it's up to the designer to say, look, the rules of engagement are the brief. And if you're changing something, then that is a change to the brief and that needs to be gone over all over again. And we need to actually cost that. Most of us 
and it really, really is most of us don't do that, that we will allow work to drift, to morph, to change to without, creep. exactly, to creep, without necessarily um, annotating all that change. And contractors are brilliant at actually um, having a whole system in place of change orders and variations so that they keep track of exactly what changes, when and by what instruction. And we ought to be doing the same and we're not very good at it. But there are ways you can, I mean, we, for example, we will at each stage of the proposal, we will say we have included for three client conferences and three sets of revisions or mm. five and four or whatever it happens to be. Any allocation of meetings and work over and above this will be, you know, I'll, I'll do it for you on an hourly rate or I'll do it, I'll cost it for you as a separate proposal. And so clients are aware and you can actually say to them, you know, well, you have actually had... Susie, don't tell me that you've never had an argument with a client where you say, I'm sorry, but that's a chargeable meeting. And they say, what? Yeah. How can you possibly do your job without this meeting? And you say, but it wasn't included in the proposal. No, clients, I mean... Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. definitely difficult. We, we walk but. a tightrope. We always do, especially because and I think too, interior designers probably are too eager to please a lot of the time. We need, to be, we need to be more ruthless about it. But I think at least if it's in your proposal, this is the point. If it's not, if you haven't said it, you can't, you can't, um, you can't force it. But if you've said four meetings and that's it, otherwise I'm charging you, you might give them a fifth if they're just dithering over a couple of decisions. But if it goes to seven or eight, you have the option to turn around and say, you know what, Mr. Client, I'm really sorry, but you're way over your, your um, allocation of meetings on this particular stage of the project. I am going to need to bill you for some extra time. And at least it gives you the opportunity to go back and dip mm. another toe in. I, I, I do think time is one of the other key components of a fee proposal. Not just the time of the project, but the time that you're wish- willing to allocate to the project. And that's difficult because most clients won't accept a time-based fee proposal. But you do need to put an end date on it always. And we always do now. We never used to. But now we say, OK, this fee proposal goes until or the project goes until June the 6th, whatever it might be. Beyond that date, we will renegotiate. We want to finish the project. We want it to look fantastic. And that is a weak negotiating position. I think this all feeds into, into the idea of how do you ensure that you get treated like a professional? Because I think there are times when you have to be a bit tough and you have to walk away. I mean, if, you're, if your client is a you know, senior executive in some giant corporation, he's used to negotiating and making difficult decisions and, and you know, putting the phone down every day of his life, probably 20 times a day. Mm. We just need to get better at doing it. And I do think, actually, that they will respect you for it if you... If you push back a little bit. One of the big problems, one of the really big problems, particularly with larger projects, is you get a lot of consultants. If the process isn't managed very, very, very methodically, so we will have finished our initial stage two drawings, but mechanical services or um, structures or architecture or whatever it might be, won't have done the same and won't be at the same stage. So they're changing their drawings whilst ours are becoming frozen. So that means that there's a mismatch between the information and it's not up to date. And it can get horrendously complicated if that process is just, not managed. Just to give you a concrete example of the sort of thing that Charles is talking about. If, for example, the 
mechanical and electrical people haven't worked out what size plant room they need yeah. and you have a, a you know series of bedroom suites or something and they suddenly decide that in order to get the air conditioning equipment in or, or the, the the lighting racks or whatever that they're going to need to take more of your space there has to be a conversation with the client then about you know you either lose some of the services or you or you lose some of the space because this stuff has got to go somewhere so yes that that's very difficult and in fact we had a um, one big project we were working on where the client was playing tennis on Sunday mornings with the architect. And every time we thought we got these damn things frozen on Monday morning, <laughs> lo and behold, there's another iteration of the floor plan. And it just went on and on and on, on to the point where I had to say to the project manager, this has got to stop. Yeah. Just to go back on one thing is exclusions, is make sure when you do a fee proposal that you exclude what you're not doing. And that would be architecture maybe or structures or um, mechanical services or audiovisual or all of those other consultants or landscape architecture whatever it might be just make sure that you exclude all of that because you don't want your client to have made possibly the right assumption that you're doing it make sure you exclude it and make it clear and something else that we always include for is a certain time allocation for actually coordinating and looking at the drawings that other people are sending us. So if the structural engineer, for example, is suddenly putting additional steels in, then we, we need to take that on board. There has to be one kind of a master set of information for the project. So we would allow a certain amount of money for each consultant that's going to be involved for us to coordinate and, and work with them to, to ensure that it's all kind of hanging together. So that clarity and communication, I get that that is completely important when the project is up and running and it, and it helps overcome lots and lots of problems. But when you're putting that initial fee proposal together, you don't really have that relationship necessarily, no. do you? But you can make, again, you can make educated assumptions. You can say, well, mm. I can see that this is a fairly complicated project and therefore there's probably going to be an architect. There'll definitely be a structural engineer. There'll be somebody who's doing party wall awards. There'll be a building control officer. Um, there's probably going to be an audiovisual person. There well, could be an, honestly, an M&E. And, and, you just, and you just list them. And then, obviously, if they decide they don't want to do it with an M&E consultant, you've, you've made that allocation. That can just come out. Or stay in, you've excluded Or stay in. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I think also with experience, you do, um, you do know at the beginning what, will, what the project will entail in terms of expertise and how big it might be and how complex it might be as well. And to be honest, you need to put in as well, at a fee proposal level, you need to put in a buggeration factor because... If you get an awkward other consultant, and I won't say so which a, kind a, of other consultant. Is that a technical term, buggeration? Yeah, it is. It is. We put in a buggeration factor into all fees because you know that somebody else will not keep up to pace or may not perform as well as you want or just circumstances sort of take over or they found something in the ground that you didn't expect at all. So you need to have something in there, some contingency to make sure that you can still service the client yeah no absolutely one of the issues i think the problem with all this is it's, it's all very well in theory but then we find that our fee proposals end up being so long mm. and so complex and particularly with private clients then it's very very difficult to get them a to read it and b then to understand it i mean it can be it can be really fraught yeah, and they will and, and they'll look at it and go i don't need all this stuff 
And I'm going, yes, you do. You well, really, truly do. I think there is also an art in, in condensing and making as short as the span of attention of a client, which may be very, very, very short sometimes. So I think you do need to compress. It does need to be legible. It does need to be readable. I mean, we've had contracts sometimes once it gets to contract stage, which is not necessarily fee proposals. So don't think it is. The contract will be, you know, as thick as a novel. And you think, how on earth does anybody ever, ever sort of work with this? That's why we work with standard REBA and BIID contracts, because they're straightforward, they're simple, and they're in easy language as well, which makes a huge difference. And there's a new one coming out now, isn't mm, there? There is, there is. It's very soon. So how do you present your fee proposal? For us, it's a Word document. Um, I've heard various people thinking on whether you should have some sort of summary page on the front, because that's the other thing that you know most clients... They just want to see what the number is. They want to see what the figure is that you're quoting. So do you bury that on the back page on page 12? Mm. Or do you actually have a sort of a, t- a, a summary table on the front page? Um, and then you, you you run the risk even more of the thing never actually being read. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that one. I, I don't know either. But we always put in contents to say what's included within this proposal. That's a good idea. We try, if we can, and we can't always, to sit down with the decision maker and go through it page by Absolutely. page. But it's, it's more not often always than not, possible. I mean, we will sometimes, on particularly on bigger projects, we'll be dealing with a client's representative who may or may not have the full power of decision. And that can be very complicated because then you'll get somebody who's second-guessing someone else's decision, which may not be right. So, and that, that has led to quite a few complications in the past where, where for instance, um, the client's representative thinks that he knows exactly what his boss, who is based in somewhere in the Middle East, I better not say where, uh, and then um, makes a decision based on that. The client turns out to be very unhappy. We show him what we're doing and he says, yes, that's what I want. So it, to some extent, it sort of undermines everything because there are intermediaries that you have to go through and that can make life a bit more complicated. So normally uh, with residential projects, you will be dealing directly with the client and you'll be able to speak directly with them. Sometimes, as I say, with commercial projects, we don't have a direct dialogue with the client. But then you still have to go through the process of making sure that they've understood your deliverables and they will kind of second guess a lot of stuff and say, well, do we really need this many meetings doing? And my answer to that is always, well, you know, let's put them in. Mm. And then if we don't use them, you don't have to pay for them. Yeah, we would do very similarly as well. And I'm I'm very happy to work very openly and transparently with oh, our I clients think that's in terms of the fee proposals and in terms of what we're giving for what we're doing. And But the problem is that sometimes, maybe not even sometimes, maybe often, clients don't fully engage with the information that you're giving them. And that's something that we have to overcome. We have to sort of bludgeon them into sort of looking at, reading and signing off. But if people are just referring to the bottom line without actually looking at what's involved, that's the other issue. It drives you know, me if mad. You're, this, if you're, if you're, in, a, if you're in a sort of beauty <laughs> parade, you know, quite often you might be one of three interior designers pitching for the same job and you've done it all beautifully. You've set it out professionally. You've listed all your deliverables. You've listed the number of meetings you're going to have, how much time you're going to spend on site right down to the last doorknob. And you've got someone else who's kind of gone back of an envelope. Yeah, 10% of £350 a square foot, job done. And it's not, it's not reasonable or fair 
when someone's actually gone to the trouble to to analyze the amount of work that's involved, but it's very it's very poor practice from the well, client's point of view. Let me give you an example. <laughs> we um, we recently went to a meeting for a hotel in their boardroom and we didn't know who to expect in the meeting. There was the project manager, but there was the client's team, which was eight people. So you have your printed uh, fee proposals out front and you have to justify your fee proposal. What I noticed after about maybe less than a minute of getting into the fee proposal and saying, we're doing this, 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 and this is, we had a basic concept at that point, a basic idea, I would say. Um, what we found is that they were all turning straight to the last page and looking just at what the number was, what the fee was. <laughs> that was it. And they, they weren't reading a single word, even though I talked them through every single word. I think not one of the client's team actually sort of went through it with us. So it was a, a waste of time. As it happens, we won the project. But uh, probably, unfortunately, because of fees. And then the problem is you think, oh, no, I haven't charged enough. But a, a complex fee proposal will take you, I mean, a really complex one can take you a week to prepare. Mm. They're massive documents. And do you build in that time into the fee proposal? No, you can't really. Well, we don't. Perhaps we well, should. You, you hope it's there within profit somewhere. Except that when you begin to analyse projects retrospectively, you find that there was nowhere near enough. Nowhere near enough padding in there. No buggeration factor. No buggeration factor. It sounds impossible. How on earth do you do this job? Well, uh, I told you a minute ago, and I'll tell you again, because we love it and we're fools. We are, opt we are fatally optimistic, I think. If you were to look at the majority of business models for a design practice, you would say you must be crazy. You know, the amount of hours, the amount of expertise, the amount of knowledge, the amount of methods that we understand and know that go into a fee proposal that are not justified by the quantity of the fee proposal does not justify what we do. But we have satisfaction. We do love what we do. And when it comes out right, there's not much that really compares with the feeling of walking into a space and knowing, you know, I did this. And, and that the client is the client, beyond yeah. delighted and that you have had such a positive impact on someone's life. If your clients do not have resources sufficient to match their expectations or their aims or their goals or their dreams, walk away. Walk away fast because it will be a hiding to nothing. You, you will never achieve what you want to achieve and everybody will be frustrated. The client will be frustrated, you'll be frustrated. And the whole of the rest of the team will be frustrated as well. Do you think a fee proposal can ever be truly ironclad? No, not by an interior designer at the moment. If we learn to be more like contractors, which we don't want to be, but if we learn to discipline ourselves in the same way that good contractors do with um, change orders or variations or whatever you want to call them, then I think we've got a fair chance. And, um, and we all know what our hourly rates should be or could be, um, but we very, 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 very rarely achieve them. And that's the difficulty. But if we were more disciplined, first of all, in, in phases and stages, and secondly, in terms of exactly um, what we do and how we change what we do when there are change requests that come in, then we've got a chance, I think. What's your best advice then, Charles? Um, is to be as precise as you can be 
with a fee proposal and a brief at the beginning of a project and to hold on to the design and onto the amount of effort you put into. Actually, that's not quite right. It's not about effort you put into, the amount of hours you put in to achieving that design. And um, sometimes we were, we're our own worst enemies because, you know, we will over-design something. Oh, actually, that's, a, that's a, maybe a last point worth making. We always state what the, in, what the drawings are going to be used for. So are they design intent drawings? Are they construction drawings? Because obviously construction Absolutely. drawing is going to be much more detailed, for example, than a design intent drawing. So you, you can, again, it's about staging those assumptions. Yeah, and we would always now, we will never accept to do construction drawings. The responsibility is far too, too, high. too high. The risk agreed. is too high. Um, and just there is actually one last thing worth mentioning about fee proposals is that to some extent, a fee proposal is about risk reduction. It's not about increasing your exposure and your risk. So what you, you want to approach a fee proposal with is how can I reduce my exposure and my risk to, um, to all sorts of problems like undercharging, like not um, keeping track of variations, of being sued potentially. I mean, I've never been sued, but I mean, it does happen. So I think a good way to look at a fee proposal is to say, okay, I want to do the design and I want to do it for the right price, but how do I reduce my exposure and my risk? And you need to look at, I think, every single stage and every single moment of a project in terms of risk reduction. It's horrible, but it's true. Oh, great advice. Thank you. So this is the part of the podcast that we really look forward to. This is where we ask our special guest for the strangest client request that they've ever had made to them. We did once work on a beautiful penthouse in Gibraltar with a client and a client that I was very, very fond of, I must say. And we had a very, very nice, close relationship. And uh, we commissioned some joinery to be made for his dressing room. And it was exquisite joinery. I mean, the detailing was beautiful with inlaid leather and all sorts. It was very, very beautiful. And uh, it arrived on site and I thought that looks fantastic. And the lighting was right. And it, it absolutely hit the brief. But the client walked into the um, dressing room and came out and was furious. And I thought, what's your problem? And he said, uh, you know me, you know me well, don't you? I said, I think so. You know, we've worked together for quite a few years. And he said, how could you get something so wrong? I said, what? What's the problem? You know, there's beautiful sort of gliding drawers and pieces and things. And he said, how could you not know how I folded my underwear? It doesn't fit into that drawer. <laughs> I had no answer. I said, don't give me the draw. I'll take it back to the joiners. We'll sort it out. But he was furious, fuming anyway. <laughs> but he's a lovely guy. Thank you once again to Bolthaup for hosting our discussion today. And thank you so much, Charles, for your invaluable contributions. The interior design business is available from audio on-demand services everywhere. And if you enjoy listening to the series, then please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at IntDesignPod, Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod, and on LinkedIn at the Interior Design Business Podcast. 
This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production.